Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Kat, it's so great to have you here. You come so highly recommended from our dear mutual friend, JJ Virgin. So really excited uh, you're finally joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So why don't we start by telling us about your personal health journey, which led you to you know, the current amazing work you do. So let's start there. I used to run a clinical trials research center. I'm a psychiatrist by training and a geriatric psychiatrist. And um, I have done over 100 clinical trials with all kinds of pharmaceutical drugs. And every time I got a new study, I would be excited, like, this is a new mechanism of action. Maybe this will help my patients. But after doing study after study and, and seeing people have some symptom relief, but not really get well, I finally started to get clear, like, I don't think the answer's in a pill. And well, one of my specialties was Alzheimer's, and um, I had done 20 long-term Alzheimer trials. And in the midst of doing these Alzheimer trials, when I turned 50 years old, which was 13 years ago now, um, I became as cognitively impaired as the patients in my dementia trials. And I would give them three words to remember on the many mental status exam. And I had used these three words for over 20 years and I could no longer remember the words. I was having to write them down while I quizzed my patients to be able to ask them uh, the questions, right? And, um, and things just got so bad that gradually I realized it was time to stop doing what I was doing. And I moved all my research trials to another center and thought I was going to take four weeks off of work and get well. And um, it was a three-year journey of getting well. And um, uh, it got worse before it got better. So um, I, I basically had started having trouble using a computer. I couldn't remember how to do things that I used to know how to do. And I would drive my husband crazy, asking him over and over to come show me how to do something. And of course, he would get annoyed saying, wait, I just showed you that. And I wouldn't even remember that he showed me. Um, and I started having trouble driving my car. I lost the ability to back up and parallel park my car. I would try over and over to parallel park and just get frustrated and say, okay, forget it. I'll go find another parking place. Um, I, um, I had trouble dialing phone numbers. I would just get confused trying to hold the number in my head or look at the number and dial the, dial the phone number. And, and it really even got worse. I, I, I developed auditory processing problems. I kept going to my ENT doctor and asking him to give me hearing aids because when I listened to conversations, I would just hear like a little snatch of every word and I couldn't quite hear the whole word. And he kept telling me, Kat, you just have a mild hearing loss. You don't need any hearing aids. And I finally had a a moment of truth. I was in a quiet restaurant late at night with a couple of friends and I I just couldn't participate in the conversation. I couldn't understand what was going on and that was pretty terrifying. So I immediately went back to him. I said, Luke, just give me the hearing aids. I I don't care, I need to do something. And he looked at me funny and he said, Kat, the problem is not in your ear, it's in your brain. And they tested me and I had developed auditory processing problems. So my brain was not decoding what was being said. It wasn't that I couldn't hear it properly. I could not decode it. And so it was, um, you know, quite a a journey. 
And luckily I had enough brain cells left that I learned about functional medicine. And I started studying with the Institute for Functional Medicine and their first, uh, the first module coming up when I learned about it was autoimmune and allergy. And in the midst of all the cognitive problems, I also had developed multiple chemical sensitivities. So I was completely allergic to everything. Um, I couldn't get out of a chair for a year, but if I could get out of the chair and go into a store, the smells would make me very sick. I was covered in rashes and hives and, you know, and it coincided with the menopause transition because I'm sure we'll, we can talk a bit about that, the role of hormones in the brain, but it was multiple things going on for me. And so as I learned functional medicine, I applied each module that I learned to myself and gradually there came a day that my brain came back online. I was able, it was really exciting when I realized I could hold the seven digits of a phone number in my head and dial the phone number again. Wow. How, how long was that journey? Well, it was definitely a three-year process before I was able to go back to work. Um, and, you know, the exciting thing now is all that I've learned and done with my patients since then we can help shift people much more quickly. I mean, I was, I had a very broken brain and I was trying to learn things and figure out where do you get this and how do you do this test and, you know, apply things to myself. So, um, you know, with, when I work with patients and, and I'll, you know, we'll love to tell you about the clinical trial we did because we were able to have very dramatic changes in many of our patients with mild cognitive impairment and dementia in only nine months. Wow. Well, I, I'm so glad you're well. I'm so glad you're here to tell your story because I'm sure many people would face with sig the significant cognitive decline. You can't participate in a conversation. That, that, that's scary. And then you couple that with you know, some of the sensitivities you were experiencing and not being able to get up. For many people, that would have led to a loss of hope and unfortunately, ultimately, a death sentence. But, well, but you're here. And that's amazing. <laughs> With my favorite message that, you know, I just can't say enough times that dementia is not a death sentence. Now, in you know, all the trials that I did with people, you know, we knew where they were going and, you know, it, it wasn't good. I mean, the average life expectancy once somebody is diagnosed with dementia is about 10 years. It goes faster for some people and it goes slower for some people, but it's about 10 years. So here I am 13 years out and my brain, of course, working far better, far, far better than it, than it was then. Um, so, you know, I think the most important thing for me is, is just, you know, getting, getting the word out that dementia, if people think it's this mysterious disease, oh, you might have some genetic risk. Well, you know what? I didn't have the APOE4 genetic risk for Alzheimer's, and yet I still got quite demented. Um, so um, the, the genetics definitely can play a factor and confer a slightly higher risk for people. But it's really all of the epigenetic factors that are happening with our diet, our lifestyle, our illnesses, our infections, our hormones that, that are, are causing the neurodegeneration. So I like to tell people that it, it's, it's not just this mysterious disease that just happens, but it happens for reasons. And usually a whole bunch of reasons. It's, you know, I mean, it's almost never one reason. I always have an exception to some of my rules like that, but it's usually a multiplicity of re reasons. And so then our job becomes, okay, let's find all the reasons that the brain is starting to decline or degenerate, and then let's fix them, right? Because many of these things are fixable. 
And once we can, you know, get everything going, the brain can come back online. We have, you know, this beautiful neuroplasticity that's built into our brains that we can learn new things up until the time of death in our very old age. We are still learning and encoding new things. I mean, that's been shown in studies with head scans. They, they put people at the time, of, you know, almost at the time of death uh, in old age into a head scanner and given them cognitive tasks to do. And they can show that there's new synaptic connections happening. So all the way through our life, not, you know, when, when I trained in medical school in the 80s, we were taught that by 18, you had all the neurons you were going to have and that's it. And it was going to just be downhill from there. But that is not true. So I like what you said that dementia isn't some mysterious disease that all of a sudden just happens. And it happens for a number of reasons, not just one reason, but a number of reasons. So what are some of those reasons? Right. Well, um, I think some of the reasons are very well known that um, people that have problems with um, say high lipids and their blood sugar control, those are known to, to, um, to damage the blood vessels and the flow. And we need our blood flow to, you know, go to our heart, to our kidneys and to our brain. So when we have metabolic diseases like hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, those are pretty well established causes that can ultimately lead to dementia and cognitive decline. And then there's inflammatory states. There's all kinds of things that cause inflammation. So that takes us to kind of the foundational of of any kind of health is our diet, right? What what we eat controls everything. And so if you're eating a really bad diet that's full of inflammatory foods, you're going to be inflamed. And when you have high levels of inflammation, that will drive and accelerate any other kinds of diseases that you have going on. And of course, inflammation in the brain wreaks all kinds of habits, havoc in the brain. Um, and then um, some of the some of the things that that oh I should say even people don't don't always think of this but stress we know that stress and depression are risk factors for dementia and I think because they are you know creating this um, inflammatory state in the brain but um, the things that I really think a lot of people are missing with regard to dementia are the infections the toxins and the lack of hormones and. And the infections, um, I think COVID has taught the world a lot about what happens with a virus and the brain. Because we've been saying this for a long time, those of us working in, in you know, work in reversing cognitive decline, there's all kinds of infections and viruses that love to go to our brain. And the best known before COVID was syphilis, right? In the you know century, in the you know 1800s, before we had antibiotics, people would get syphilis. They might have a sexually transmitted symptoms, and they would go away. And then down the road, some years later, the infected person would basically go crazy, right? Their brain was being eaten up, and they would you know get psychotic and demented. And so. Um, an analogy to the syphilis is the epidemic we're having with Lyme disease. And especially with global warming right now, we're seeing Lyme marching all over the country. I live in California and it's it's been found and reported in every every single county of California, though we have some areas like along the northern coast and here in the San Francisco Bay Area that, that has more. But Lyme is a spirochete and syphilis is a spirochete. So they're the same type of, you know, same class of organisms and people can get Lyme disease and it can um, 
some people remain very, very ill and symptomatic, but some people have Lyme in little letters where, you know, they, it might, you know, cause some problems with their immune system and things may come and go, but they're not sick all the time. But it, it resides in the brain, as do some of the Lyme co-infections like Babesia, Bartonella. And, and over time, when we have infections in our brain, our immune system gets activated and it's designed to kill the invaders. So even if we have sort of subclinical infections, um, when they start to reactivate or wake up, the immune system starts killing them. And, you know, the world has learned about cytokines and the cytokine storm from COVID, right? You get the COVID infection and especially with the earlier strains, our immune system would kick in and some people would have a cytokine storm that was so intense trying to kill the bug that it would kill them. And so the cytokines, um, they're, they're designed to release their, they release it. They're like inflammatory chemicals that are designed to help, you know, break down these invading particles. And then our immune system can phagocytize and eat them up and get rid of them. Um, but if they're going on long-term, they cause destruction. And so, so the infections are just, are such a big thing. And one of the things that we do um, in, in working up all the causes of cognitive decline, um, I test all kinds of viruses, Epstein-Barr virus, herpes virus. We've long known that, that people that die with Alzheimer's have much higher incidence of herpes simplex one in their brain than people without Alzheimer's or dementia. And, and I should say that Alzheimer's is just one type of dementia. So there's many, many different types and some have, you know, different pathologies, but they, they, most of these types of dementias are happening for triggers and reasons. So infections, uh, I would I would classify as a less obvious factor. Something you've talked about as well, which which to me is definitely not obvious. Oral health. Oral health, yes, and that that is you know the role of the oral microbiome. I mean, what's happening in our mouth with our our gum disease and our infections and just our background um, micro, microbiome in the mouth. You think about it; it's right next to the brain, and what's in the mouth and what's in the nose can travel right up into the brain so easily. You know, we have our skull protecting us, but at the base where these things are connecting, there's this really porous plate called the cribriform plate. So it's it's quite easy for bacteria to track up into there. And so we have an increasing body of, of studies, you know, coming out in recent years, showing a very clear connection of what's happening in our mouth and the linkage with dementia. And um, I find now the biologic dentists um, are, are starting to test these things. Um, we test them in our patients. There's testing we can order. There's, there's actually three different companies now that are offering oral microbiome testing. And um, the one that I've been using, my periopath, I uh, believe they test, is it 12? 12 different strains. And, and they've, they've figured out now, okay, these three strains link with dementia. These three strains link with heart disease. These two strains link with the joints and arthritis. So different, different types of pathogens in our mouth are going to different parts of our body and turning on different diseases. Fascinating. So I was going to ask you, what is good oral health? How, how does one know? It, it sounds like it's not 
if my teeth are white or I have no cavities, or maybe that plays a role, but it's this, it's a microbiome test. Is that fair to say? Right. Well, um, I think if you have no cavities, that's a pretty good thing. And what I have observed is people as they age, maybe they didn't have cavities when they were younger, but they're starting to get them, you know? So, you know, it, it, it's probably a combination of maybe they're not as good with their oral hygiene routines and maybe their immune system's not doing as well. And where else does the microbiome come from? Our diet, right? What are we eating um, is, you know, what's setting the microbiome for us. So, um, so, so, I mean, the obvious, of course, is oral hygiene. And some people have more proclivity to periodontal disease than other people. Um, but I do think it probably does come down to their diet and their general state of inflammation. What's happening with that? I know at, at my dental office, they will swab your, your teeth and put it on the microscope. And then they, they have it on a big screen so we can all see what is in that that sample, and then they'll look at the number of different types of microbes and t and tell me, oh, you know, look, there's one or two things here, and this is really good, this isn't isn't bad. So I, my hope is that this will um, make its way into the dental dental offices, but then having some of the testing that we can do um, is now very, very helpful. And I wanna tell you one little story about the testing. Your romantic partner, uh, you're exchanging microbiomes with your romantic partner. And so my representative at my periopath told me that she tested herself all the time because I guess she has free testing since she works for the company and she didn't have cavities and everything was really good. And then she started dating a man who went on to become her husband and she suddenly got a cavity. <laughs> And so she tested him and she tested herself and she had picked up some of his oral bacteria. So you're not in this alone. <laughs> you do have to consider, you know, if you have an intimate partner that, and even your dog, you know, our dogs, we hug them, they kiss us, they lick us, um, you know, that um, you, you could be exchanging pathogens with, with people. <laughs> And and what what was the name of that test? If folks want to oh, go oh, take a look, yeah, my periopath, P E R I O P A T A. Got it. And in addition to that test, it, it does sound like it's just basic oral hygiene: brush your teeth, floss, and, and get this microbiome test. And then and then diet plays a big role, right? And some people need to do more. I mean, some people need to do you know water picks and more aggressive work if they're having gum disease. What we did in the dementia clinical trial um, that uh, I know you and I will talk about is um, we actually had, uh, we got a donation from um, the people that make biocidin and they make um, uh, um, antimicrobial toothpaste that are, it's made with natural products and they also have a dental rinse. And so they donated the toothpaste and the dental rinse for our study. And so we had all of our patients in our dementia clinical trial for the nine months they were in the trial using those products. And, and it was quite interesting. A couple of my patients said they didn't have any problems and they normally had good checkups, but their dentist would say, what are you doing? Your mouth looks really healthy. So it, it was kind of affirming that, you know, they were on the right track perhaps by using these products that were keeping their mouths better. And so you've mentioned diet a couple of times. And, and as you know, nutrition is a hot button uh, issue. And there are various points of view. 
in terms of what diet is the optimal diet for, for brain health to avoid cognitive decline. What, what's your point of view on, on diet? Well, my point of view is diet is foundational, right? Um, if we, we don't have a healthy diet, you know, we could take all the supplements we want, but we're not going to undo an unhealthy diet. Um, my other feeling is there's no one size fits all diet, right? We're, we are all very different. We bring different things to the table. Um, so, I mean, obviously we want people eating a whole foods diet, you know, without processed food. We want them eating organic to avoid all the toxins that are on the food. We want them eating free range meat and chicken and wild caught fish to avoid all of the problems with feedlot animals. Um, but, um, in our, in our dementia clinical trial, which let me just say, since I haven't mentioned it, but. Um, I worked with Dale Bredesen and Anne Hathaway and Deborah Gordon um, on a clinical trial, a prospective clinical trial with um, using a, a preci precision medicine or functional medicine individualized approach with our patients uh, to, to treat uh, mild cognitive impairment and early dementia. And we had 25 patients in the study. It was a nine month trial and 84% and of the patients in our study got better. And I can tell you that at my site, I had 10 patients at my site and quite a few of my patients by the end of the study were testing completely normal. And so that was very, very exciting. In our study, we required that they ate a ketogenic diet. So this is, you know, one of Dale Bredesen's um, favorite things is a ketogenic diet. And we know that with aging, um, a, a ketogenic diet is, you know, we can either burn carbs, uh, sugar and carbs as fuel, or if we deprive our body of sugar and carbs, we will shift into burning fat as fuel. And as, as we age, people lose their metabolic flexibility. When we're younger, we can easily shift between burning carbs and burning fats, but it gets harder to, um, to be able to break down, regulate the blood sugar, break down the carbs for people, some people with aging. So the thinking is, okay, if we shift them into a fat burning, could that help? Well, we know that ketogenic diets actually have been used for more than a century. It was first, they were first started to use, to be used with children that had intractable seizures and um, they couldn't control the seizures. But when they put these children on a ketogenic diet, it did something to decrease the inflammation, change the transmission or the excitability of their brain, and they could resolve the seizures. So fast forward to now, actually, there's been a, a bunch of studies that have come out, a bunch, I mean, a handful, um, but, it, you know, some is better than none, um, even showing that people with bipolar disorder actually can, um, can calm down their mood disorder and, um, and their, you know, reduce their manic episodes and improve their functioning with a ketogenic diet. So we have a really clear signal that it's doing something in the brain. And for some people when they eat a ketogenic diet, their brain just gets really clear. They have this clarity of their thinking. It does not happen for everyone. And I don't think it's the right diet for everyone. Um, but, um, but definitely for some people, it's quite good. And then for the purposes of the study, we had to have everybody kind of following the same plans. So that's what we did. One other thing is when you're in a ketogenic state, it's been shown to increase your BDNF levels, and that is your brain-derived neurotrophic levels. And BDNF is a hormone that helps us to make new connections, new synaptic connections in the brain. So we want more of that. So things that can give us more of that um, are, are wonderful. Um, so 
so for some people, the ketogenic diet is great, but other people can't tolerate it. Some people lose too much weight. And when we have older people that are not, you know, that are more underweight, then that, that can be a serious problem. So, and we also don't know the ramifications of long-term keto, right? Is it good to be in keto long-term? Should you do intermittent keto? There, there's a lot of questions about that. So um, I think it's, it's worthwhile for uh, people to try and especially, I mean, I have some patients, it gives them so much brain clarity that they want to keep eating that way. And other people, it doesn't make a difference. So maybe they're going to do better with, you know, a paleo type diet. So in this study, which you conducted with Dale Bredesen, who's been on the show, you know, you say 84% of, of 25 patients, it's small, but 84%. And it's a real study. It's published in a real journal. Right. A good journal. Yeah. A good journal. This, this journal is real. Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Exactly. So something we were talking about before we started recording, why isn't this front page news? This is huge. No one, no one gets better. But you, you've got a real study. 84% of 25 patients got better and it's published in a real respected journal. Why isn't everyone talking about this? Right. No, I mean, this, this is something that, you know, is befuddling to those of us on the team and those of us doing this work. Um, it should, this should be international front page news. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of resistance from the academic community. Um, they're still stuck in the amyloid hypothesis that there's going to be a drug that wipes out amyloid that cures Alzheimer's. And of course, how many, we've had many, many failed trials for that. And, you know, they're letting out, you know, drugs like the aducanumab that just got approved in this last year that costs, you know, $50,000 a year. Um, I think up to 24% of people have brain bleeding from that medication. And just like the other drugs, it can like slow down the decline slightly, but it's not making anyone better. And so, you know, we're stuck in the academic medical centers and the medical schools are all funded by the pharmaceutical industry. They're looking for a single drug cure and we're not going to find that. I, like I said, I came to that conclusion for all of my psychiatric disorders that I was working with. There's the, a single drug doesn't make us well. So, you know, we're really trying to go with what will make us well, what can halt this process, you know, and return the brain and the body to wellness. There's, there's no pill for a lifestyle modification grounded in a ketogenic diet. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's not easy, um, you know, to have to roll up your sleeves and exercise and meditate or practice mindfulness, because I would be remiss if I didn't say the two best validated ways to increase our BDNF and, and improve our brain, our exercise and meditation. So in our study, those were requirements. We had our patients had to exercise six days a week. They had to do some kind of mindfulness component. And what we chose for the purposes of our study was heart math. You're, I'm sure you're familiar with heart math, but it's, you know, I call it meditation for non-meditators, but it's, you know, a very well validated method that, you know, can improve your heart rate variability, which now is a, HRV is a huge buzzword with all of the, you know, biohacking devices we have, but heart math's been at it for, you know, more than 20 years trying to, you know, help people improve their heart rate variability. And, um, and that, that it's such a simple little, little method that they have that even children can do it, you know, and they, you know, you get a device, you hook a sensor to your ear with your cell phone app that you purchase and basically, it just tells you breathe in and breathe out, and it's synchronizing your breathing with your heart rate variability. 
And then they tell you to think of someone you love. And that I think is kind of their magic sauce because when you think of someone you love, you release all these hormones like oxytocin, the love hormone, the bonding hormone, and and that floods your brain with these you know lovely feel good hormones. And and when your brain is in a parasympathetic state, when it's in a calm zen state, that's when it can regenerate. That's when it can heal. Right? We can't heal when we're in our type A stress, going from this to that, and you know that's that's not a healing state. So we have to take some time you know, every day to, to be in, in this, you know, peaceful parasympathetic state so that our bodies can just, you know, have a rest and and things can regenerate. So essentially a a heart centered meditation, if you will, with a focus on breath and with regards to exercise, could you be a little bit more specific about what that program looked like for the folks in your trial? Yeah, um, let's see if I can remember the exact specifics. And I I do want to say, in our trial, we really had a Cadillac team to help support our patients. And, you know, we all love, as physicians, we love to have our patients work with health coaches and nutrition people and exercise people. Um, But not all patients are willing or able to do that. But one of the things that we saw in our trial was each one of our patients had a nutrition consultant, they had a health coach, and they had an exercise coach. And I tell you, having that dream team, I think, was one of the factors that helped people to shift more quickly and, you know, that helped us to have such great results. So each of our patients had an assessment with, um, with their assigned fitness coach, and um, they had to do a combination of strength training, of cardiovascular training, and balance training, and high-intensity interval training. Um, And so the HIIT was um, done two to three days a week. You know, for a short amount of time, the the HIIT data is so beautiful that you only have to do it a couple minutes of getting your heart rate up to, you know, almost maximum, um, and then um, all kinds of metabolic things ensue and it, it just can help all kinds of metabolic factors. So the HIIT is, um, you know, such a great thing to do. And you can incorporate that into whatever you're doing. I mean, if, you know, if you're running, you just run harder. If you're hiking, you push as hard as you can for two minutes, you know, um, but you can do things easily at home, you know, jumping jacks. And there's just all kinds of things you can do to, to push your heart rate up. But you only want to do that for a really short period of time and because we've actually learned that over-exercising is worse for your heart than no exercising. So too much exercise and too much training causes all kinds of oxidative stress that will worsen things for our bodies. Um, Then the, um, you know, people did different things depending on what they liked and what their exercise person told them. But um, we definitely like them to do strength training Um, with aging. Of course, people can get cachectic and lose their muscles and and we want them to do core, core work and balance training because we, we really need to prevent falls as we age, right? So, um, so it was a combination of all those things. We did ask them to exercise six days a week. And um, I believe they, trying to remember exactly what the number of minutes they were. But I mean, I think the biggest thing was at least 25 to 30 minutes, six days a week. And we preferred if they did 45 to 60 minutes. And, and one thing we found was 
the people who did more in the study, there were minimum requirements. So they had to do those things. They had to do the heart math every day. They had to do brain training also, the heart math and brain training and exercise week, six days a week, right? I mean, some people, you need, you know, to have a day off and you don't, of course, train really hard every day either. But um, we incorporated brain training as a, as a way to help with the neuroplasticity. So, uh, so they had to do all those things every day. But I had, I had one patient who came into the study. He is an ApoE44. So he has both two copies of the gene that we know confers a higher risk for Alzheimer's. And when you have an E4 gene, what it, what it does is people have a more exuberant amyloid response. So when our brain is injured, it will secrete amyloid to try to, it's like a gooey, sticky substance. And, and if you have an injury, be it an infection or a toxin or an allergen that's activating the immune system, the brain can secrete the amyloid to try to protect that neuron from damage. But when you have chronic things causing damage, you will have more and more amyloid and then eventually it will gum up the works and your brain will stop working and start degenerating. And so people with an E4 allele, have a more exuberant amyloid secretion. So if, if you're a four and I'm a three and we have the same infection, your brain will make more amyloid than mine. And so therein is sort of the problem and why, why investigators have been all hung up on the amyloid hypothesis. Okay, well, let's get rid of the amyloid. Well, we have drugs. I worked on drug studies that we could get rid of the amyloid, you know, uh, way more than 10 years ago. We could show on the PET scans the amyloid was gone, but people didn't get better, you know. And and we've learned in in our you know functional medicine, precision medicine world, it's like no, we have to we have to go you know upstream, and we have to look at the factors that cause the amyloid there. Can you talk a little bit about the amyloid hypothesis and the history of it, and kind of where we are today, and how it has really led us astray? And yeah, well, we're still there today. <laughs> You know, there's several studies going on right now. They pop up on my Facebook feed, you know, Eli Lilly's recruiting for another amyloid drug. So this is still, you know, considered the holy grail of the um, academic research community. Let's wipe out the amyloid because it is clear that amyloid is not a good thing if we have too much of it in our brain. But as I said, we, we've had drugs for years that could wipe out the amyloid and it just didn't translate to people getting better clinically, right? So that's our benchmark. Who cares if you wipe out the amyloid? We need you to function better. Um, and it's, it's, I don't, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing that, you know, uh, some information came to light a few months ago about one of the first labs that had discovered the linkage with amyloid and causing destruction in the brain. And one of the, I believe he might've been a postdoc at the time, and now he's a professor working on this project, had, had um, you know, falsified or overinterpreted or overstated some of the data. And, and it's called into question the whole hypothesis, and yet billions yes. of dollars are still being dumped into Let's, you know, still find another amyloid drug. Yes. To further the point, essentially, a lot of this hypothesis was based off a study where it turns out years later, this person was exposed for, for fabricating parts of the study. In, in some ways, a fraud, whether intentional or not. Right. 
and, and here we are still looking at this hypothesis when it's all based off this original study, which years later exposed fraud. And so here we are still. It's, it's kind well, of and, you know, baffling. Um, well, I mean, one thing that Dale Bredesen has told me is there may be a role for this type of drug once we work on resolving all the factors that are causing the amyloid to be deposited maybe then when when we've got everything in balance for some people perhaps could it be useful to then give a drug to you know do a little cleanup after you stop all of the mitigating factors exactly but it's not a silver bullet not a silver bullet but you know but but we don't know and and you can, it's just like I said, you know, you can't just think you're going to be healthy by taking a lot of supplements, but eating a crappy diet. So you've mentioned a couple of times in the context of prevention and reversal brain training. I want to come back to brain training. What exactly is brain training? So um, interestingly, we've, we've uh, had a couple studies that show that um, dancing, particular uh, tango dancing can be very helpful for, um, for people with dementia. And and I think um, one of the factors with something like tango dancing is it's a partner's dance. It's a couple's dance, right? You're dancing with a partner. So it gives you an even another level of brain stimulation besides the input of the music and the rhythm and the movements, which is a social connection. You know, and so we know that being socially connected is something that actually facilitates um, more longevity and better aging. But back to you know how so social connections stimulate the brain and 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 I do want to say that retirement is actually considered a risk factor for dementia. When people retire and they're like, oh, I don't have to work, I can watch TV, hang around, you know, they're not doing all kinds of things and stimulating their brain. The brain, if you're not giving it inputs, it's going to degenerate. So so we want to constantly be stimulating stimulating our brain. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so one of the one of the ways that we can stimulate the brain um, is brain training. I mean, it's long been known that okay, crossword puzzles are getting you to think and plan and strategize. How do you fit all those words into the boxes? Um, and so um, we've kind of evolved past that, and those are still good. It's still good and fine to do crossword puzzles if people like them. But um, there's a there's a couple of programs that have developed to give you, to train actually different parts of your brain. Um, I think luminosity was one of the first ones out there. And the one that we're using in, in our studies in our patients is called Brain HQ. Um, it was developed out of a group at UCSF. And Brain HQ has a, tons of tons of research studies. And it's been incorporated in a lot of research studies with cognitive issues and mood issues and ADHD issues. I mean, uh, basically, they have very nice data showing that this methodology can can help and change things in the brain. If I'm currently healthy and I'm not experiencing any sort of cognitive decline, but I'm focused on prevention, I'm concerned about it. I, I don't want a problem to ever arise. What are what are the say the top three or five things I should focus on today? Definitely, you know, being healthy and you're probably healthy because of your diet and lifestyle. So, you know, definitely the diet um, can't go anywhere without that foundation. And then um, sleep, um, you know, our brains detoxify and regenerate while we sleep. 
So we definitely need to take steps to protect our sleep, get enough sleep. And, you know, we only discovered a couple of years ago that, that we have this glymphatic system in our brain and it's like our lymphatic system in our body, but it's the same thing in our brain. And when we sleep and when we get into the deeper phases of sleep, the, those glymphatics start expanding, the ventricles that have the fluid in our brain expand, and they start churning around the fluid in there. And, and some people have said it's like a washing machine. It's like, you know, cleaning out all the particles and toxins that we've accrued that day. And when you think about not getting enough sleep, I've, uh, I've written it out for talks, but okay, if you're getting six hours a night sleep instead of eight, which eight is, you know, could be seven, some people need nine. I mean, it's a little different for everyone, but if we use eight as our benchmark of a healthy night's sleep, if you're sleeping six hours a night, then you lose 14 hours a week. And then, you know, translate that times four, how many hours a month are you cheating your brain of detox? And then how many hours a year? So chronically not getting enough sleep is a big issue. And then um, also with regard to sleep or the problems with sleep apnea, we definitely test all of our patients. And, and I think for anybody that's having a sleep problem of any age, of any build, like, you know, you're thin and, you, you know, you don't look like the big, stocky, overweight person that we would think of with sleep apnea. But I have found sleep apnea in thin women. So um, if people are having a sleep problem, I do urge them to get a sleep study. And those can now be done at home. So you have, you know, you could go to the sleep lab and get, you know, the device, but you could wear it at home, which is a little more naturalistic than having to go to a, a sterile sleep lab and be hooked up to all kinds of things. But the home studies are good screens for sleep apnea. Um, so anybody having insomnia problems, get that checked out for sure. You know, make sure it's not sleep apnea, because if you have sleep apnea, you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain while you sleep. And getting, if you don't have oxygen, you're killing brain cells, you're killing also your heart cells. Anybody with sleep apnea over time is going to develop congestive heart failure. So um, it's just a huge risk factor. So let's, let's say diet, sleep, um, and exercise, I'd probably put right up there, right? I feel like one of our best ways to have healthy aging is to keep moving and keep exercising. And I think we can all see it, you know, people who you know, get older and aren't moving. And I mean, I see people my age and I think I'm not that age, you know, I must be 20 years younger than that because, you know, it, it's a, it's a different, it's a different thing when some people get into their sixties, they're, they're very old, but, you know, I mean, our generation has the longest projected lifespan. Sadly, the generations behind us are having shorter life stands because of the toxicity of the world. Um, but, um, but I think exercise. So those three things I think are the, the biggest things. And then if you're, if people are having problems, you know, then they need to dig deeper and do prevention, meaning, you know, treat any of these, these factors. Um, a couple other factors I should just mention midlife hearing loss is a huge risk factor for dementia. And it is the biggest modifiable cause uh, of dementia I mean, it's easy to fix. You get a hearing aid, right? So if people are having a hearing loss, now we're encouraging them, please get that checked out um, early. I feel like, you know, things start declining at 50 and, you know, you need to keep up with your hearing exams and your vision exams, because if you're not hearing and you're not seeing properly, you're not getting those inputs into your brain all the time. 
So um, hearing loss is something that, that I do feel like people, as they are aging, they should have that on their awareness. That's interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. And it's, it is number one modifiable risk vector. So in closing, where do you think the field is going? What excites you? Yeah, I mean, I'm so excited about the work that we do, as you can tell, you know, because I have patients that get better. And, and I should I'd just like to tell you one quick story. I had, I had a patient that came to me, it's been over five years, and he had lost his driver's license because of his dementia. And he was, you know, very uh, dedicated patient. He did everything. We reversed the dementia. He got his driver's license back. Um, which, you know, doesn't usually happen in the classical world with dementia. But, you know, that was a bunch of years ago. And I just saw him recently and I had him repeat his cognitive testing. And he has maintained his gains for the last, you know, five years. Like he has not declined a bit on his cognitive testing. And he told me that when he went for diagnosis, he went to, you know, our big academic center here is UCSF. Memory and Aging Center. He went there for his diagnosis and they told him, it's time for you to start visiting nursing homes because it's time. You need to start looking at nursing homes. So here I have this gentleman five years later, you know, reverse things has held steady. And, and, you know, it just breaks my heart to think that this is what he was told. I had no idea he was told that because I can tell you that's very traumatizing for my patients to be told, go get your affairs in order. And there's nothing we can do other than possibly slow things down for a year with taking a medication like Aricep. So I'm super excited. We have a great team of dedicated researchers and we're working on our next research study. We've been working on it more than a year. We just submitted it to the IRB two weeks ago and we brought in more investigators, you know, exciting biomarkers now, the newer things that we're gonna be testing like amyloid levels and tau levels and neurofilament light levels and, you know, uh, the true diagnostic epigenetic aging testing. We're testing BDNF levels before and after. So we've got a lot of interesting markers to look at, but, um, you know, we have a big study team where we're all putting our heads together and, you know, trying to push the envelope. What else helps the brain? You know, some of my colleagues are doing QEEG brain mapping and then doing laser treatments to the brain and getting some marvelous results. So, you know, I just feel like if we can keep looking at the causes and, you know, keep expanding our repertoire of all of the factors that we can, that we can study and treat, um, we have every reason to be excited uh, about where the field is going. And, you know, I, my hope is that eventually the academic centers will embrace this because we need big systems to help with this. You know, I, I feel like um, it will be accessible for more people when we can get it into the healthcare systems. hundred percent agreed. And Kat, thank you so much for all of the incredible work you're doing. And, and please keep us posted on all those studies. We got to have you back and talk about them. I agree. It's an exciting time in the field and it's not going to be a silver bullet pill. Maybe it will be, but I don't think so. I think it's going to be lifestyle modification driven by a lot of the, the work you and Dale are doing. So thank you so much. Oh, and let me just, <laughs> there's so many things that I keep thinking that I should say, but 
I mentioned it, but I just I feel like I'd be remiss to not say it because the, not the silver bullet, but definitely looking at the toxins and looking at the role of hormones, we could have a whole other conversation about these things, you know, but, um, but they're, they're all factors for the brain beyond, you know, starting with the healthy people, the diet and lifestyle modification, but once people have symptoms, they should be aggressive at looking at all of these factors. Well, just in close, I can't leave on, on leaving us hanging with the toxins and the hormones. So let's so let's go there quickly. We've got a couple. We've got a couple more minutes. If you do, so let's go there quickly. Tell us about the toxins and hormones. You can't leave us hanging. Okay. Yeah, I know. They're, they're, it's all so exciting. Okay. So the hormones, we have receptors in our brain for all of the things that we think of as sex hormones. So estrogen, men and women have receptors in their brain. Testosterone, men and women have receptors progesterone, we have receptors, and then pregnenolone, which is the grandmother hormone that's the precursor to all those hormones, and DHEA. These are hormones that are easy to test. We can test them at Quest and LabCorp. We can look at the levels. We already know past a certain age that men and women are not going to have estrogen. The women won't have estrogen because their ovaries have you know, given up, and men won't have testosterone because their gonads have given up. Um, but in both genders, measuring all these and repleting the hormones, not to the level of when you were 18 or 20 years old, but just getting people in the middle of the hormone range um, has been huge for people's brain. And there was a, a, a fabulous study done a few years ago at Stanford, and they took women that were at high risk for dementia that had been on hormones, and they randomized them either to continue their hormones or stop their hormones. They followed them for two years. They did head scans and neuropsych testing. And at the end of two years, 100% of the women who stopped their hormones had degeneration in their brains that they could see on the head scans, which is significant. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the role of hormones in the brain and, and, you know, people, um, you know, are worried about cancer risk from hormones. Well, it turns out that if it, that there's more studies coming out that taking hormone replacement after breast cancer is actually protective from a recurrence because the breast needs those hormones to be healthy as well. So, um, so you know, using bioidentical hormones, giving our estrogen transdermally through the skin and not by mouth um, in a bioidentical form. Um, actually has less cancer risk and not more cancer risk, which we, you know, we, we just, we have these big studies in hormones that say, oh, they can cause cancer. Those are the older synthetic hormones that are in all these studies that keep getting cited over and over again. Um, so, I mean, so hormones, and not, they'll also save your brain, your skin, your hair, you know, all kinds of things, because you have receptors for these hormones all over your body. They're not just sexual hormones. Um, so, you know, a plug for the hormones and, and, what about um, toxins? and the toxins. So as you know, the world is getting more and more toxic. Um, the heavy metals are kind of a no brainer. They need to be tested for. We definitely see um, higher levels on average of things like mercury and lead and cadmium. But we can detox these things quite easily for a lot of people. You don't need aggressive IV detox for the majority of people. Um, for my patients with mercury, I mean, what, what I do is when I see elevated mercury level and the, the labs reported as over four is positive, but I don't want to see it over one and I really want to see it zero. And so um, we know that, um, 
that sweating is a great way for our bodies to detoxify. And there's been nice studies done that show that we will excrete toxin, toxic chemicals, we'll discrete, excrete heavy metals when we sweat. So something like sauna or hot yoga or something that makes you sweat um, on a regular basis is again, a natural thing that our bodies can do. But I, with the caveat that I tell people when you're sweating, have a towel there and wipe it off as it comes. And then after you do a sauna or a heavy exercise, go jump in the shower with some soap and wash it off because you've just mobilized all these toxins and you don't want them to dry and reabsorb back into your body. But um, say for example, with the mercury, I have my patients, um, if they do have an elevated mercury and cognitive issues, I tell them you know, for four to six months, no seafood at all, not even the smash fish. Like, let's just not have any risk of you bringing in the mercury. I give them liver support. I really like using sulforaphanes. I have a favorite, you know, um, broccoli extract, Avmacol, that's got, you know, beautiful research. I love research. I love companies that will show me that this product really works. And I've seen that work over and over for brain fog and people with mycotoxins, which is something else we didn't even get into here, but the, the mold toxins are killer for the brain and a huge factor for people. Um, so, but I can just basically take people off of seafood, give them some liver support, ask them to do some sweating, and I'll see mercury levels come down over four to six months, often to wow. zero. Wow. So, you know, it's not like rocket science to get that done, but what I think is, we need to detox. It needs to be a part of our lives because the world is so toxic these days. Even if we're eating organic food, I mean, you can test people and everybody is positive for glyphosate or Roundup. You know, they say it comes down in the rain. You know, we have chemicals in our water. We, you know, so even when you're, you know, trying to live a clean lifestyle and really careful about what you put on your skin and your hair and what you wash your hands with, people still get exposed to toxins. So, you know, having a, a practice of sweating, doing, you know, perhaps some you know, nice liver support. You can eat lots of broccoli and lots of vegetables as well. You know, vegetables are, have a way of naturally helping detox for us. 100% agreed. We're mind, body, green after all. You could be doing all that meditation, eating organic, exercising. But if you're letting toxins take over your life, it's going to negate a lot of that good stuff you're doing. So we totally get it. And it's critical. And what we do when we test people is that some people are just poor detoxifiers genetically. I would be one of those. Um, you know, one more reason that I got sick, even though, you know, I had eaten organic food for 20 years before I got sick, you know, but, but my genetics are not the greatest for, you know, some of the mutations that, um, that, oh, cause problems with detox. And I, I had a patient early on when I started working with cognitive decline and, and she was already in a nursing home. Um, but, you know, I was testing everything to see what can we help with. And, you know, cause she hadn't had hormones for a while and she had uh, some cardiovascular disease, not horrible. But when I did her toxin screen, um, uh, Great Plains lab has a urine tox screen and it tests, I don't know, I get a, multiple pages of chemicals that they're testing. This woman had like, first off, let me say that if you have one thing in the red or two things in the yellow, it's considered significant. 
she had nine things in the red, like it was red, 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 you know, she was off the charts, toxic. So what that told me was, and, and you would think, okay, this, maybe she worked in an occupation with a lot of chemicals. No, she was a school teacher. So, you know, she was not working in some, you know, industrial setting. She didn't live on a farm with lots of chemicals. Um, and so I promptly suggested to her daughter that we get a talk screen on her since they shared the same genetics and she was about 50, the daughter, you know, and sure enough, the daughter had pretty high levels of toxins. So some people are going to be, you know, worse at detoxifying than others, but it's definitely something I just feel like if we can all incorporate that, of course, be super careful of not allowing ourselves to be exposed to toxins, but, you know, working on the sweating and the liver support is probably a good thing. And in terms of testing, if one's curious to know how well they're equipped to detoxify, what, what types of tests could one do? Well, I think that, you know, it, to actually test your toxin levels is a pretty good indicator. I mean, there's different, different, there's all kinds of genetic testing now. And you can look at your, you know, glutathione genes and your SOD superoxide dismutase genes and this and that. I mean, there's multiple, multiple ones, right? But you can't change the genes, but you can change what's turning those genes off and on. So I think rather than looking at what are our genes, the proof is in the pudding of looking at how toxic are we. That's going to actually give us more direct information that we can use to change our destiny. So definitely, as I mentioned, I don't think genes are our destiny. It's these epigenetic diet, lifestyle, toxin, infection factors that are or turning the genes on and off that are causing the problems. I, I did want to say, um, if people are interested in the type of testing that I do, and you know, a general overview of this method, um, I do have on my website a free ebook that goes in, in some detail to describe the method for people of what I'm using, and um, that might be helpful to understand some of the tests that you might want to do or ask your doctor to test for you. And we'll put the the link in the show notes, but what is the, the website URL for people? DementiaDemystified.com. DementiaDemystified.com. Kat, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for all that you do and, you know, helping people to stay healthy and bringing all this information to them. Really grateful for, for the work you've done for so long that I have followed. Thank you so much for helping us to share this message too, that dementia is not a death sentence. Well, Kat, thank you. Thank you so much. So appreciate it.